You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where sometimes the obvious opening songs are the greatest opening songs. Fun-filled, action-packed episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This, as always, is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns who like to fight analogs of Mortal Kombat characters. Well, at least Kyle does, and the very odd-covered issue of Ganthet Rideau, or Redux, however you want to pronounce it. It's a French word for doing it again. Yes, this time he's fighting the beast of both worlds. Get it? Since it's the song. Yeah, it's a weird combination of Terminator technology and Goro from Mortal Kombat, which is brought to fight him from Ganthet, who seems to be a little displeased about how our uh, ring slinger is handling himself. Uh, I guess he would rather have someone awesome like Guy Gardner holding the ring. Too bad Guy Gardner is now some sort of mutant-alien hybrid with the ability to morph weapons out of his body, including sometimes gigantic guns, which again, doesn't make any sense, but I'm trying to get over that. And in the Guy Gardner Warrior book, we get to see Guy dealing with the major villain from his book, Dementor. Plus, we get uh, Dementor's old father, the... uh, witch doctor who birthed him technically I guess from the uh, zero issue and we also get get guest spots from Alan Scott Green Lantern or Sentinel at the time Supergirl and Tiger Man to make a well a loving rendition of the Jack Kirby Fantastic Four cover check it out it's definitely good looking stuff plus we've also got a lot of emails to get through because over the past couple episodes I've been doing shows with uh, some guest hosts I hope you really enjoyed uh, listening to Thomas DJ and J. David Weeder on the show. 
because I sure loved having him on here. But we'll get to all of that and more after we get done with these promos for some podcasts that you should listen to. And when we get back, we'll get started on our coverage of Green Lantern number 62. So stay tuned after the break. Hello there, lovely ladies. May I just say that you look quite beautiful in your matching Slave Leia metal bikinis? You have permission to come aboard my den of nerd erotica. Some people would call it my mom's garage. I call it 10.1 forward. Can I interest you in a death stick? Nope. I was just kidding. Have a shot of Tranya. Once you get loosened up, we can play a friendly game of strip fizzbin. Let me loosen that strap. Hey suckers, Maury Clawhammer here, okay? You want your freaking Star Wars? I got your Star Wars right here! What about the Star Trek? You like that shit too, right? Right? That's what I thought. Well, we got that and we got more freaking comics than you can read in your entire miserable goddamn life. Hey, there's even a girl who talks about unicorns and goddamn Harry Potter and M... 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 Them goddamn Oriental cartoons with the big eyes. So you get your ass over to the Two True Freaks podcast at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. That's spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, alright? Alright? Good. You can get there on the internet and choose from hundreds of quality Two True Freaks podcasts. And would it kill you to buy a goddamn t-shirt? Remember, Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. It was for this moment that we were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest joined to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might Beware my power Green Green Lantern's Lantern's Light Light. Green Lantern's Light 
a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. And we're back. And because I've been remiss in reading emails at the beginning of the show, I'm going to go ahead and get to some of your wonderful folks' wonderful emails. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And the first email we have is from Mr. Thomas DJ, and it's kind of prescient because it deals with the episode that we recorded, well, that I recorded a little while ago, but you listened to a couple of weeks ago, episode 60, where we talked about the all-new Titans. It's titled New York and the... All new Titans. Thomas goes, Hey, Sean, you asked me about the way Greenwich Village was depicted in the issue of Green Lantern you covered in your latest podcast. Truth be told, when I read the issues the first time around, I didn't notice any sort of bad geography. But then Mars is careful not to anchor Kyle's neighborhood to any serious landmark. He puts in parentheses, I've always suspected Kyle lived on 4th Street, around the corner from the fruit stand that is where Doctor Strange's mansion is in the Marvel Universe, thus the Wong character. Makes sense to me. You know, I know you've had a problem in certain forms of media, especially, like I said before, Escape from New York and the Spider-Man movie, where Manhattan has been depicted very out of character. So it's good to know that Mars is at least shying away from giving specific landmarks to define where the character is staying. Tom continues, This issue, however, brings up a question. Are you going to cover the year and change when Kyle was a member of the... All new Titans. I should warn you, these issues, which Marv Wolfman wrote under protest and under the dress of having the stories plotted plotted by his editor, were truly dreadful. They're dark, they're without much hope, a reflection of Wolfman's depression he was suffering at the time. Ouch. And a borderline nonsensical. Maybe you and I should do an episode that addresses the tat in this turn, the way you just rip off a a band-aid so we can move on. Hey, that's a great idea, Thomas. Why didn't we do that? Oh, well, I guess we did do that. Yeah, Thomas was on episode 60 where we discussed the uh, Warriors episode, and Thomas basically shied me away from covering the Titans. So, again, Thomas, thank you for doing that, and I guess this email's a little bit out of order, but eh, there you go. Tom finishes up. Hope I answered your question. See you at Warriors, Tom. Thank you, Tom. If you guys aren't listening to Better in the Dark, I don't know what's wrong with you. It's one of the best podcasts out there. Recently, they did a show about... Um, Oh, they did the Frankenstein monster movies from uh, all the way from the very first Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. And they brought in uh, this character named uh, Count Bloodraw, who I'm assuming is kind of – well, here in Oklahoma, he, there, we had a guy named Count Gregor who hosted uh, Midnight Movies and basically did horror movies. And I think he's that sort of guy. If you remember the original uh, Fright Night – uh, the Peter Vincent character was kind of like that. So I'm thinking who this was, but it was a fun show. Definitely go listen to Better in the Dark. Absolutely fun, fun podcast. Our next letter comes from excellent podcaster Luke Giaconetti, ho- host of Earth Destruction Directive, and he has his title of his email being, Am I Falling in the Right Leads, or Am I About to Get Lost in Space? And he starts out the letter, When my time comes, they will write my destiny. Will you take this ride with me? Whoa. And of course, unfortunately, I don't understand the Misfits song because I don't think I've heard it. But I'll have to go check it out. He's 
Luke says, it's always good to start an email off with some misfits lyrics. Always dig Lost in Space for the Irwin Allen connection. Once, while filming an episode of Lost in Space, Irwin Allen told the uh, was told of the cost to build a spaceship prop for the episode's alien, and Allen's response was, let him walk. True story. Gee, Irwin Allen cutting corners in his sci-fi show? That's, that's hard to imagine, Luke. I, I can't see that happening, because that show was a paragon of sci-fi grandeur and it wasn't i'm sorry continuing on luke says in green lantern you have to follow you have to love the horio trope of the alien space bar i put that in quotes because after it debuted in star wars the cantina bar was almost instantly added to the pop culture science fiction lexicon appearing as soon as the theatrical version of Battlestar galactica a few years later on a casino planet with the bug aliens that one even had an alien musical act yeah i remember that that was the weird sort of Oh, it was the disco uh, Donna Summer type people with four eyes and two mouths, if I remember. Just really bizarre looking alien. So, yeah. The Star Wars Cantina theme was essentially ushered in to be everywhere in sci-fi after Star Wars. So, there you go. Continuing on, Luke says, That having been said, Adora's fate is a little harsh. I'm not sure why she killed herself, except possibly for the fact that the creative team didn't want anyone else to use her. Makes sense. The burden of being the only Green Lantern in the universe is heavy enough without laying a kill trip on Kyle for something he didn't even do. I suppose making his life that much more miserable is a legitimate approach, but his life always sucks as it is. Putting this on him uh, seems like a, bit, a little bit of overkill to me. I happen to agree, Luke. I hadn't even remembered the character of Adara simply because it was this one-off character in the book, but the fact that she commits suicide at the end of the book is is really tragic, and it just builds up more grief on Kyle's character. Luke continues, as far as getting Kyle, as far as Kyle getting all the babes, I don't know, but that to me stinks of DC wanting to make him the quote-unquote guy men want to like, uh, the, the sorry, the guy men want to be like, and the ladies want to be with. The quote-unquote pretty boy label got thrown around a lot back in the day about Kyle, pairing up with a parade of beauties that seems to support this theorem. Eh, again, true. Luke continues, But hey, dark side and Dasad. Gotta love random new gods appearances. Yeah, they're all over. Even the Guy Gardner issue a while back, so there you go. Over in Guy Gardner, speaking of that, teaming up with a phantom stranger is a quote-unquote strange twist, pun intended, for Guy. But this sounds like a fantastically bizarre issue, taking a hard left turn in the mystical side of DCU rather than the science fiction stuff that we've been firmly entrenched in. The mystic corner of the DCU was taking on a new shape in this post-zero period, with Canton Inns and Nelson dead and the Jared Stevens fate as the defender of the Earth realm. And with a man of action like Jared Stevens as the lead magical guy in the universe, the bad guys in these those stories moved away from the spellcasters like Felix Faust or Mordrew the Magician and shifted to violent, monstrous demons. Dementor seems to fit in that mold for sure. I have nothing against the evil wizard-type characters, but there is something more viscerally satisfying about seeing our heroes defending Earth from the demonic. Well, Luke, this is awesome because you should love talking to Tom's DJ because he uh, mentioned in the... Uh, show well you heard it uh, a while back that uh he really enjoyed the jared stevens version of fate and uh so uh hopefully sometime you'll be able to get to converse with mr dj about this uh maybe on another podcast we'll be doing hit hint uh later on uh luke says i like the emotional response of guy when morning ice in fact i like the whole norse sequence here guy speaking to queen all off in her native language is a big surprise and a welcome one 
But anytime we get to see Guy portrayed as an actual human and not just a pair of fish, not just a pair of fists and a bowl haircut, it's awesome. I agree. Also, nice use of Nightmare on Elm Street music, and of course, Airwolf. It's always good when I can plug some Airwolf into the show. It's good fun stuff. And then in regarding the Screaming Scroll, the Screaming Scroll, the Screaming Skull from Mystery Science Theater, it's Crow! It's Crow! When Crow was yelling that, trying to get Mike from stopping beating him on the head with a with a golf club. That was hilarious. Luke says, the image of Mike bashing Crow over the head with a golf club over and over, including Tom Servo nonchalantly advising him to use a wood instead of an iron at one point, is one of the absolute funniest from that era of MST3K. That and Tom Servo claim, calling to claim that he died while watching the film and wanting his free coffin. Man, that brings me back. Yes, I will agree. Of the sci-fi era, I can watch that episode of The Screaming Skull and get to that point, and I cannot help but double over in laughter. For some people, Mr. Science Theater in the sci-fi era was kind of hit and miss. I can kind of agree there were some weaker parts, but when they were on their game, they were hilarious. And this is one of the shorts that was just one of the host segments that was just one of the best. Go, see, go search out Screaming Skull. I'm certain you can find it either online or it might even be on uh, might even be on Netflix. Well, check it out. Uh, Luke finishes up. The Double Dragon movie is only worth mentioning because it stars one of the gals from my wife's favorite show, Alyssa Milano from Charmed, and the chairman from Iron Chef America, Mark DeCoscos, or however it's spelled. Right now, the guy stuff is a lot more interesting to me than the Kyle stuff, but looking forward to where both of them are going. Keep up the good work, Luke. Thanks, Luke. And continuing the theme of having emails from Luke Giaconetti, we've got another one, this time out, titled Guy Gardner Saving Bill Clinton. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, starts out, Sean. Let me just say that neither Legion nor Rebels really interested me. I like Brainiac as a Superman bad guy, but I never got into Vril Jocks or Brainiac 5 or any of those other offshoots. Never worked for me. Uh, I can agree with you to some extent. From the limited amount of Legion that I read, Vril Dox was an interesting character. He was very scheming and very conniving and seemed on top of things. But the whole aesthetic of the Legion just never grabbed me, so I'm with you on that point. Uh, Luke continues, Simon is an interesting foe for Green Lantern. Sort of a twist on Hector Hammond with the mental powers, if you think about it. Ironically, my favorite bit ever with Simon was he was always called Brainiac by the ever by every character in the Tidy Titans. He would always get bent out of shape and demand to be called Simon, but to no avail. Once all of the different Brainiacs showed up and Simon hung out with them, which did not help his cause any. Personally, I always read his name as Simon, like a Digimon character, rather than the name Simon. But maybe this is because I like monsters. Uh, I could see that, but the reason I call him Simon is because in the uh, Teen Titans book, they use that awful pun of Simon Says with P-S-I-M-O-N, P-S-A-Y-S. So, yeah, there's that. Continuing on, Luke says, uh, Cal's girlfriend, was la last name was DeWitt. Wow, strange Iron Man connection. There's a storyline from John Byrne's Iron Man run called Armored Wars 2, which revolves around a character named Kirsten DeWitt. Pretty sure it's just a coincidence, but since I'm an Iron fan, I'm contractually obligated to require I'm contractually obligated to mention any and all Iron Man connections, both major and minor. So there. 
Well, I'm surprised that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised that they may have plucked it off that, but uh, as there being a relationship of any sort, uh, yeah, it's probably just coincidental, but an interesting coincidence nonetheless. Regarding superheroes wearing sunglasses, Luke continues, with Arsenal, I can at least sort of buy it. If you're going to be using projectile weapons, then you might want to have something to keep the sun out of your eyes. Of course, if getting the sun in your eyes was Arsenal's biggest problem, he'd be much better off, but this is neither here nor there. Uh, I can understand that, but it's more of the 90s aesthetic look that I think they're going for. It's possibly one of the practical things that you could uh, point out in his costume, but everything else is very 90s, including the hip pouches, the belts, the shoulder pads, and the miniature crossbow pistol. So, did I say crossbow pistol? That's what I meant to say. Yeah, okay. Over in Guy Gardner, the entire story sounds like loads of fun, Luke says. Goofy and approaching nonsensical, but with loads of fun nonetheless. The World Trade Center connection will always be weird now in this era, but it doesn't take away from the fact that this is a good story about Guy Gardner fighting cyber pirates to save the president. But making fun of Clinton is just icing on the cake as far as I'm concerned. But lest a reviewer on iTunes accuse me of being a hardline right-wing extreme right-winger, I will move on. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. We don't want to. Uh, we don't want to disappoint the uh, the uh, non-conservative base of this podcast by making commentary on uh, political things. I'll try and shy away from that. It's. I, I want to keep this a, a a fun podcast for everyone, despite the fact that you know we may have opposing opinions then on politics, but. Like I said, this isn't a political show. Luke continues, I think the drug Flex was also used over in the Steel series at the time. Uh, I'm hoping Michael and Jeffrey over at uh, From Crisis to Crisis will uh, fill me in more on that, but I, I'll take your word for it. Continuing, Luke says, WDF Raw was a sequel to WWF Royal Rumble. You're a little ahead of the times in guessing in Brock Lesnar, but the lineup consisted of some mainstays of the end of the new generation of the era of the WWF, which was the early 90s, before the so-called Attitude Era. Unfortunately, few of the stars of this game are no a few of the stars of this game are no longer with us, including Yokozuna and Owen Hart. Yeah, it's disappointing that. The tragic fate that has befallen some of the characters from uh, the WWF or the WWE now. It's it's a tough road to, to walk down uh, with those characters. I mean, it's a physically demanding sport, and you know, there's also some stunts in there that just can get you really hurt. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, Luke finished up saying, By the way, the secret to Nerf guns was to get the spring-loaded ones and not the air pump ones. The spring-loaded ones were much powerful and easy to fire. We used to play a game back in college using our Nerf guns. My friend Mac had the classic Pink Floyd back catalog poster on his wall, and the game was that you laid on the bed opposite the poster with a Nerf weapon, and then someone called out the name of an album. Then you would have to hit that album. Loads of fun, especially after a few brews. That sounds like a perfect college game, Luke. Anyway, loving the show. Keep it up, dude, Luke. 
Thank you, Mr. Jack and Eddie. Uh, if you guys aren't listening to any of the podcasts that Luke does, whether it be Earth Destruction Directive or Two True Freaks' Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, definitely go check them out because they are awesome fun. If you are a Daikaiju fan, you love giant monsters like Godzilla and Gamera, Earth Destruction Directive is the podcast for you. He just recently finished covering uh, the IDW Godzilla series. I think he got up to episode or issue 10, and that sounds like a heck of a fun book. Luke said he was really enjoying it, so much better than, I think, Gangsters and Goliaths, which I think he had some problems with. But um, he also, like I said, does The Vault Show, which is a horror movie show, which we're covering Italian horror movies at the time. Luke's actually had me on on the show. And we're also uh, going to be starting our series of the Friday the 13th movies. And we just recently looked at the uh, first Friday the 13th movie. So hopefully those should be coming out really soon if they're not out already. So go check those podcasts out. Our next email comes from Dave Walker, and it's simply entitled Music. Uh, Dave writes in saying, Hey, Sean, not had much time to write in recently and just wanted to praise your awesome choice in music for your show. I may have said it once before, but it bears repeating. It always seems that you fit the scenes you're describing. It always seems to fit the scenes that you're describing perfectly. I enjoy trying to figure out what exactly what music you're using, and it only irritates me a little when I recognize it, but can't place where I know it from. I was disappointed last week when you played the English version of the Teen Titans theme song, since I enjoy the Japanese one so much. In fact, I blame it entirely for me getting into the liking of various bits of J-pop that I've now heard. Ah, uh, not a problem. Puffy Amayumi is a catchy band, and uh, J-pop is catchy music. You know, I'm not a fan of it. I don't have a huge amount of it in my collection, but, you know, it's one of those things that's fun to listen to, and, oh, dear God, it's much better than most of the tripe I hear on popular music radio today, so there you go. Uh, Dave continues, That said, when I started listening to this week's episode and heard the start of the song, I knew what was coming, which just made my day a little better. I'm glad that I was able to play the Japanese version for you, Dave. Dave continues, I should probably get back to work now, so keep up the good work, and I'll be looking forward to hearing about Guy and Kyle's adventures. Dave. And he finishes up with, P.S. Although Street Fighter is not a fantastic film, I have to say that Raul Julia is a reason to actually watch the film. He really seems to embrace the role and has one of my favorite lines. For you, the day, for you, the day Bison Gracier Village was the most important day of your life. But for me... It was Tuesday. <laughs> I just love the way he delivered that. The anime Street Fighter movie I've seen was pretty good, but I'm pretty certain that I don't want to see Street Fighter Legend of Chun-Li with Kristen Kurok from Smallville, though. Looks terrible. Um, I haven't seen all of uh, The Legend of Chun-Li, but from what I did see of it, yes. Best to be avoided. But thanks, Dave, for writing in. Dave is the host of Flash Legacies, and he's started up a, a new series of podcasts. Uh, you might want to check him out, including uh, Flash in the Bronze Age, uh, which Charlie Niemeyer is doing, the uh, Jay Garrick Adventures, which Jay De or not Jay David Weeder, but uh, uh, John Wilson is doing. So the Flash Podcast Network is uh, growing in leaps and bounds. Definitely go try and check those shows out. <clears throat> They're there. But that clears out the email bag. I've got a couple of emails for another podcast that I did, but I'll be saving those for for another time. Maybe you'll find out about it. But thank you, everyone, for writing in. I do appreciate getting emails from you, and it's always fun reading them. 
I'm sorry I had to speed through them right now, but uh, I've had the past couple of episodes be email free because I was doing with uh, other podcasters. And to pull back the curtain, the next few episodes will be done with uh, podcasters uh, guest hosting as well. So uh, I want to try and get them out of the way. So if they do build up, I'm not led to like an hour and a half long show of just reading emails, despite the fact that I love reading them and love getting them. But there you go. But since all that's done, close the email bag up and we'll get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 62. Green Lantern 62 was cover dated May 1995 with a release date of March 21st, 1995. The cover price was $1.50 US, $2.10 Canada, and $70p UK. The title was Ganthet's Tale Redo, or Redux, however you want to pronounce it. The writer was Ron Mars, pencilers were Daryl Banks and Joe St. Pierre. Oddly enough, it sounds like a French name. Cool. Inker was Romeo Tangal, color Steve Matson, letter Albert Guzman, and Eddie Braganza and Kevin Dooley were girly men. They were probably assistant and editor, pretty much what they were before. Jogging through Central Park, or yogging in the uh, Scandinavian language, Kyle Rayner is having problems keeping up with his Titan scene mate, Donna Troy. Stopping to catch his breath, Kyle questions Donna why he really needs to exercise when he wields the most powerful weapon in the universe. At the same time, some thugs point a gun at our hero's heads and demand that they hand our over their valuables. A knowing glance later, and the two Titans spring into action, with Kyle shackling one perp in a ring construct shackle, okay, and Donna giving the other one a sock to the chin and a cross trainer to the cojones. Restraining the second attacker, Kyle says that he could have easily handled them both. Donna says that Kyle is relying too much on the ring and that he, should, that he ought to learn how to defend himself in other ways. Kyle again scoffs at the statement, saying that he's the Green Lantern, bitch, and that only makes him completely awesome. Of course, Donna quickly disproves this theory by hip-tossing our overly smug paramour. Usually, on the ground underneath Donna would be exactly where Kyle would like to be. But with the circumstances they are, Kyle admits defeat and accepts Donna's offer of training. The two get up and we see a strange burn spot in the middle of the park, but as this isn't a plot point they need to make note of right now, the duo continue on their way until Donna calls it a night as she's due for monitor duty at the Titans headquarters. Kyle tells her the next time they're in Central Park, he'll take her for that carriage ride he promised long ago. Sealing the deal, Kyle takes Donna into his arms and gives her a goodnight kiss. Donna comments that she likes where this is going, as she leaves to head back to Titans HQ. Kyle, feeling pretty lucky himself, decides to head out as well, but this time as Green Lantern. Flying through the city that never sleeps, Kyle muses about how things are turning around for him. Sure, he's taken on responsibility by bearing the ring, but the changes because of it are starting to look brighter. However, one of the negative parts about being Green Lantern is that you have to deal with the Mecha Space Coro when they attack it once in a while. After recovering from being tossed into a billboard, Kyle confronts the 50-50 alien-android hybrid, who keeps asking our hero to come with me. Kyle is reluctant, and of course that means the Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, already served, for the book is about to begin. The two combatants duke it out, with Kyle relying on the ring and his creativity to save him. But in the, in the end, Becca Goro knocks Kyle out and flies into the night sky with the unconscious lantern in tow. Some time has passed, and Kyle is awakened by a splash of water to his face from a mug being poured by the blue-skinned guardian, Ganthet. Kyle asks what the funk is going on, 
and Ganthet fills Kyle in on all the changes that have occurred with being a Green Lantern. He claims that he came to Earth to find a champion to bear the ring because the planet is known for natives with great heroic spirit. He also mentions that the 24-hour time limit and the yellow impurity are gone due to the ring being forged after the destruction of the central power battery. Grateful that he has the full story, Cal tells Ganthet that he's ready to have the little guy around so he, that he can be his Lee Van Cleef to his lead Vincent Van Patten. But Ganthet says he's not here to train Kyle. After monitoring the youthful lantern, Ganthet deems him not worthy and demands that he surrender the ring to him. Cal thinks about it, but then says, no dice, I'm the Green Lantern now. But someone begs to differ with that statement. And that someone is Hal Jordan. This is another great issue of building up Kyle's confidence as a hero, but also showing his reliance on the ring. Uh, the idea that's being put forth is it's the wielder of the ring that makes the hero, and not the fact that someone wields the ring. It's kind of like the rifle in the hands of a trained sniper. Basically, if you know how to use it, you're going to be able to use it effectively. Uh, Kyle can make the ring do what he wants, but he's not quite living up to the full potential of Green Lantern, and that's what he's getting called out at the end of this issue by not only Ganthet, but surprisingly enough, the Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, that we saw in uh, a couple issues ago. Who's back? Yep, Hal's back. Didn't take long, I guess. The Heat people were pretty insistent. But let's go ahead and get to my notes. Uh, the cover starts out with uh, actually an image that's part of the book, which is kind of novel, because a lot of times cover images are just there to catch the eye people. But this one is eye-catching as well, and the fact that there is one freaky-looking alien on the cover. As I mentioned, he's his right half is very Terminator, with a bunch of weird mechanisms growing out of his shoulder, and a rocket boot, which... Doesn't really work, I guess. But the other half is very much Goro from Mortal Kombat, the uh, forearm giant that you have to fight near the end of the game. So, very odd cover. Uh, so, uh, I guess it would draw you in, but yeah, Mecha Goro. There you go. Uh, page one, it's nice to see that Cal uh, Rayner is just as out of shape as I am, especially when it comes to running. Yeah, I don't do running unless I'm being chased by someone, and thankfully that's not very often. Page 2, panel 3, after Donna questions of Kyle, questions Kyle if he's had any exercise, Kyle mentions, why bother when I've got this, the most powerful weapon in the universe, right? And yeah, I have to kind of agree with Kyle. You know, if 
if I had a Green Lantern ring, I'd basically sit around eating Krispy Kremes all day. I mean, I could just use the ring to speed up my metabolism to get all, rid of all that delicious, delicious donut icing. Mmm, I want some Krispy Kremes right now. Page 3, panel 1, we get Muggers at night in Central Park. <laughs> Truly, this is a work of fiction. Because that would never happen at night in Central Park. Then on the same page, panel 3, again, Kyle is relying essentially on the ring, while Donna basically delivers an open palm punch to the mugger. So, we're seeing the two different styles of fighting between Donna Troy and Kyle here, and also realizing that Kyle is growing a little cocky in his role as Green Lantern. So, this issue, I think, is meant to sort of take him down a little bit. On page 4, I found it interesting that Kyle restrains Donna's mugger with some with something from his ring that looks like uh, webbing. So maybe when the police find the uh, guy in the park, they'll think that Spider-Man did it. You never know. Plus, it's also nice that Kyle decides to disintegrate the guns or move them off into some alternate universe or whatever with his ring as well. So nice going. Uh, you know, at least he's uh, trying to make sure that they don't get a hold of the guns again. Page 5, panel 1. Here's where convolutedness comes in where Donna says that she learned from Wonder Woman, but she was Wonder Woman as a kid before she became Wonder Girl, who met the Wonder Woman of Earth 2, who was was actually downtown Julie Brown, who... uh, Forget it. The continuity just completely makes my head hurt. Then, on the same page, panel 3, as Kyle's still being very cocky, Donna basically throws him on the ground with one fell swoop. And then moving, of course, to panel four with Donna sort of lying on top of Kyle. I mean, that's probably the uh, best place you'd ever want to be in the DC universe. Pinned to the ground by Donna Troy. Unfortunately, in this aspect, it might not carry the connotations that you'd want it to carry. Page six, panel three, with the big burn mark in the middle of Central Park. We have all subplots accounted for. Really good. And then page 8, I like how Kyle and Donna's relationship is growing organically. I've mentioned this before, sometimes characters get forced into love relationship with other characters. This one has grown throughout the book. It hasn't just been placed out there and said, this is going to happen. The two characters have bonded and got to know each other, and it's an organic growth to their characters, and it's an organic growth to their relationship. And I enjoy it a lot better than if it were ham-fisted and put in there, as you have to understand that these two are going to be together. So, there you go. Page 10, panel 3. I noticed on the as Kyle's flying through New York City, there's a billboard for a movie out there for the movie Disclosure, which, if you don't remember, was a uh, Michael Crichton movie that starred uh, Demi Moore and not Michael Keaton, but Michael Douglas. And it was essentially a movie about reverse sexual discrimination, which is Demi Moore being an authority figure at this uh, office and her sexually harassing Michael Douglas to uh, have him get a job. It's one of those things that makes an interesting movie, but I would doubt really actually happens in real life. But maybe that's just me thinking as a male. Um, Not that women can't have power, but this was just a very ham-fisted reversal of the whole thing about sexual discrimination against women. So 
Uh, it was a decent movie, I guess. Not one of Crichton's best, but Crichton's better doing movies about dinosaurs, so I'll give you that. Page 12, panel 3. Uh, it's, like I said, we actually get pretty much what happens on the front cover here, but again, looking at Mechagoro here, he's only got rocket boosters on his right foot, so I don't see when he's flying why he doesn't just do complete loop-de-loops and circles all the time because he's thrust is off balance. Maybe he maneuvers it in a way where he sticks his foot in the middle of his body and all that, but it's just a it's just a wonky design. Page 14, panel 3. This is kind of neat. Kyle rings up a construct that looks sort of like a Power Rangers... Like one of the Power Rangers morphing vehicles. It looks sort of like a battle cat. Maybe also something out of uh, Voltron as well, but... It again shows a testament to Kyle's love of the sort of anime stylings. Uh, Really good image, and uh, it fires a giant laser at Mechagoro, so neat. Then on page 15, panel 1, we get a sort of, uh, I guess, a DC-inspired ring construct as Kyle suits himself up with, it looks to be, a doomsday construct around himself. So, you know, the fact that he knows who doomsday is is kind of a testament to Kyle, but it's not exactly on model, but it's close enough that you can see that it's Doomsday. It's got a lot of spikes growing out of his shoulders and knuckles and stuff, so. But unfortunately, that gets beat down as well. Pages 17 on, I'm thinking this is where this is where in the book that St. Pierre took over from penciling on the pages, because the artwork looks dramatically different from uh, Banks's artwork. It's got more of that anime style that Cully Hamner did in that issue a few few times prior. So it's good-looking stuff, but it's just a little bit different from the rest of the uh, artwork in the book. Then on pages 18 through 20, we get the info dump about you know why Kyle doesn't have the yellow impurity and what happened to the Guardians and why Ganthet is back. Of course, Ganthet isn't back to train Kyle. Ganthet is back to take the ring from him. Of course, someone has something to say about that, and that someone is Hal Jordan, who on page 22 thankfully looks a lot more on model than he did in issue 61, because, wow, he looked off in that issue. That was not good at all. But, you know, that's what you get with varying different artists on one book. But that covers my notes for this issue. I'm going to go take a break here and play a couple of promos, and when I get back... You know what you're looking forward to. Issue number 31 of Guy Gardner, Warrior. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. 
From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, wait, from... wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world and when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Hi, this is Professor Allen. And when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guys Show on iTunes or come visit us at bookguys.ca. And we're back to take on the epicness of Guy Gardner Warrior number 31 as you hear me move my microphone Guy Gardner Warrior number 31 was cover dated June 1995 with a release date of April 4th 1995 the cover price was $1.75 US 250 Canada and a pound 25 UK so price pumped up a little the title was Channel Serpent a Nightmare writer was Bo Smith the pencils were by Mitch Bird Rick Mays J.H. Williams III Brad Gorby Dan Jurgens, Joyce Chin and Mike Waringo Anchors were Dan Davis, Art the Bear, and Terry Austin. Colorist was Lee Lowridge, letter was Albert Guzman, and editor was Eddie Braganza. The story opens with Guy Gardner relating the goings-on on Action 709 in the last issue to a tigered-out Desmond Farr and Supergirl. Guy thinks that he's got things under control until he gets a splitting head ca- headache and hears the familiar voice of the bastard Voldarian, Dementor. The Megadeth monstrosity bends reality in order to keep the rematch between him and Guy personal. Guy asks how he made it out of the dream dimension, and Dementor says he got by with a little help from his friends, namely the witch doctor that poisoned Dementor's mother, Mudaka. The girl Dementor is holding hostage gets a quick punch to the jaw of the terror, but it only irks the Dave Doomsday Mustaine, causing him to give the girl's head a 180 spin. This act of ultraviolence summons the cavalry in in the form of Tiger Man, Alan Scott Sentinel, and Aresia in her hooker gem outfit. 
But before the Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, can begin, Mudaka warps reality around her heroes, putting each of them in their own nightmare realm. Alan Scott sees his Justice Society comrades undergoing surgery in a horrific hospital. Tiger Man sees himself poached and turned into a rug. Aurecia sees her dream wedding to Hal Jordan turned into a nightmarish betrothal to Dementor. And Supergirl sees a multitude of clones of herself being sh- sold on the home shopping network. Meanwhile, Guy is being held in a magical cage and being forced to watch all the visions of his friends. Mudaka says this is only the beginning of Guy's suffering, but Guy begs to differ as he breaks Fierce's bonds and blasts the pair into the bar. This breaks the other heroes out of their dream state, and the red-headed stepchild beatings commence. The heroes are putting a hurt to the villains, until both Guy and Dementor ball up in pain, saying that the enemy is near. The heroes use this time to blast the dastardly duo into a dark dimension, while they're never be seen or, of or heard from again. Promise. Never. They're gone. Crisis averted, our heroes part ways, with Supergirl saying to contact her through the Titans if Guy ever needs her. Our story ends with an interlude in Paris, France. Metamorpho is talking with the French police about the disappearance of the Crimson, Crimson Fox when he's attacked by the three crags that we've seen in the prior issues. Finding that Metamorpho isn't the Valdarian, the crags leave him behind and set out to tr- find the true Valdarian, namely Guy Gardner. Well, here we've got a decent issue with a lot of character cameos and a lot of artists. Usually when you get a lot of artists in the book, it means that the main artist was rushed, but it's not quite the case here, as I think it holds together simply because the artists are doing different vignettes of the different characters. And plus you get uh, artists who've worked on certain characters doing them in this book mainly with Dan Jurgens doing the Supergirl one. But uh, the one thing I do have to say about the artistry in the book is, unfortunately, Mitch Bird, who's really been the staple artist throughout the uh, Bo Smith run, and even doing a little work with Chuck Dixon as well, is leaving after this issue. And for whatever reason, what he did, you know, whether or not he was asked to leave or whatever, this is his last issue, and it's kind of disappointing because... He's basically given Guy the look that he has for the current title, and the fact that we probably won't see him until way on down the line is just kind of saddening in its way. But we'll go ahead and start with notes, uh, starting with the cover, which, if you look at it, it's an obvious homage to Fantastic Four, number one, by Jack Kirby, with Supergirl as uh, Sue Richards, or I guess Sue Storm at the time, Alan Scott as Johnny Torch, or Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, um, <clears throat> Tiger Man as the Thing, and Guy Gardner as Mr. Fantastic. And Paul Pelletier does a really good job on the cover. It's a lot closer up than the actual Fantastic Four. It's not as expanded, but it, I believe it also had the same yellow background that the Fantastic Four cover had. 
And I think the analogs of the characters work pretty well because essentially Supergirl, like Sue Storm, could turn invisible. Alan Scott as Sentinel has the ring energy around him, which kind of looks like flame, so you can kind of think that. Tiger Man is a big muscular guy who's orange, so an analog to Ben Grimm, the thing. And Guy Gardner, although he's a morphing person, uh, can't he's not really a stretchy guy. He can change his body into different shapes to uh, utilize certain utilize his body to do certain things. So, in a way, he's kind of like Mister Fantastic in his power set. Maybe not his scientific knowledge, but who is really? It's Reed Richards we're talking about. But I thought it was a really good uh, analog and a really good tribute to Jack Kirby here on the cover. Page one, panels two and three. Here we get a sort of wonkiness in Mitch Bird's art. Supergirl's face changes between the profile shot of her and the head-on shot of her. Uh, in the uh, profile shot, she looks more like Power Girl, uh, uh, while uh, she looks like uh, the more demure and feminine uh, figure of Supergirl in the head-on shot. So it's it's one of the things that I think about Mitch Bird is that he is used to drawing these very physical, very manly figures, and sometimes his character models for faces don't really differ that much. I think I commented in a few issues ago about how his Hal Jordan face from profile looks a lot like his Guy Gardner face from profile. Plus, I'm certain we've also mentioned quite often in the show that a lot of times his characters, when they're screaming, look a lot like Hand Over Fist from Heavy Metal. So, there you have it. Moving on to page four, panel one, and speaking of Hand Over Fist, we get our first Hand Over Fist face for Guy here on this issue, so got that, and... Then on panel 5, we finally get a name for the Witch Doctor from issue 0 in Mudaka, which I guess, you know, is important because he'll be a major player in the rest of the book. No, he's going away. I'm, I swear, you'll never see him again. Page 5, panels 3 and 4. It's pretty creepy as Dementor just does a 180 turn on the girl's head and she lifts out a simple O. Oh. It's done in a way that's not gory or violent. There's no blood shooting from her eyes or any horrible sound effects. Well, there is a a little snap there, but it's done in a tactful way where it's violent enough to kind of give you the creeps, but it's not so gory that it actually turns you off. I'm surprised that this made it into a code book, but I think the fact that they didn't make it so so gory allowed it to get through. But it is an effective way of showing how Dementor is basically a horribly evil character. Then on the same page in panel 5, I, I probably ought to do like they do over the Fantasticast and with their fear of the thing or the flame on or its clobbering time count. I need to keep a count of how many times... Uh, Mitch Bird draws a character with his stern face because it's getting pretty frequent in the books. Page 6, panel 1. A tiger man jumping through a plate glass window armed with dual 9mm. I'm sorry, Internet. Your argument has been rendered null and void. This is ridiculous awesomeness. And speaking of ridiculousness, 
page seven, panel two, Aresia in that f***ing outfit. Ugh. Now I'm thinking here that the artwork has changed and if it's in the order of the way the characters were written in the title work, I think this is Rick Mays doing the artwork. And the artwork looks good. Aresia looks really on model and looks really good. But the outfit, it's back. And it hasn't improved, even with Rick Mays drawing it. Page 8, we get another change in artwork. I think it's J.H. Williams here. And he's drawing the Alan Scott dream sequence where he's seeing himself as an old man in the sort of hospital with all the rest of the aging JLA or JSA members. So uh, the artwork is actually better than what we saw in the you know, issue, uh, the pirate issue with J.H. Uh, Williams drawing it. But I think J.H. Williams has a long way to go till what he's doing in the Batwoman books because I've looked at the artwork there and that's really good. So maybe it's just him starting out here. Then on page 9, we get the Tiger Man dream sequence, and I think this is done by Brad Gorby, where Tiger Man basically gets skinned and turned into a, well, a tiger skin rug. The artwork is a lot like Bird and Davis's, so it doesn't really clash as much in the book. I can see how Gorby kind of was able to work in things with the regular artist on the book. Pages 10 and 11. Now, like I've said, I'm not the most knowledgeable about who artists are, but I'm thinking this might be Waringo drawing this because I don't think it's Jurgens. Uh, this is basically Aresia's dream sequence, and they've got a lot of the uh, lanterns on model here, including Guy in his regular Guy Gardner with Green Lantern uniform. And it's also nice to see all the uh, the old lanterns back there, not dead, so... Good job on the artwork here. Then on page 12, like I said, I'm pretty certain this is uh, Jurgens and T-Bear on this page because they've got the most uh, experience drawing Supergirl, and Supergirl really looks on model from the Superman books here. Plus, Dementor looks bizarrely crazed. Uh, he's got, and again, I think this is probably because Jurgens is drawing him, he's got a really doomsday-type feel in his artwork, so really good work here. Page 14, I haven't talked about the uh, onomatopoeia in the book recently, but they finally got one here that just really caught my eye. It's my douche as Guy breaks out of the uh, cage that Mudaka and Dementor was holding him in. So anytime you can yell my douche, go ahead and do that, folks. It's, it's all the rage. Then moving on to page 15, panel 3, we get a sort of weird outfit change for Supergirl. She's now in a sort of, well, it's kind of like a one-piece bikini with spiky silver gauntlets, thigh-high boots slash leggings, and basically bicep bands with spikes on the side. I'm kind of wondering if, uh, you know, she felt it was the time of the change, or uh, if this was editorial, or... Maybe she was just kind of self-conscious around Aresia in her hooker gem outfit. You never know. Page 18, panel 4. This was kind of a neat effect that they did. I guess Guy absorbs some liquid nitrogen from Action 709, and here he uses it on Dementor to sort of freeze him. So, kind of a neat effect, and another power that, you know, we didn't know Guy could do. But since it's in Guy's book, I 
take it more as Bo Smith coming up with it than just some other random writer, so that's a good thing. Then moving along to page 21, panel 4, after the heroes have banished Mudaka and Dementor into the nether realm or wherever, where they're never going to be coming back from ever again. We promise they're locked in there forever. Uh, the image of Dementor looks a bit off. He's a bit more squat and round. In fact, he looks a lot more like the character of Mojo from the Mojoverse and the X-Men titles, the one who turned all the X-Men into babies, if I remember. I can't remember. It was a goofy time in the X-Books. But then, of course, we get on page 22, the all subplots accounted for with the Krag ships finally making their way to Earth and finding a Metamorpho, a shape-shifting character who isn't Voldarian, so the Krags really don't care about it. But you know how I knew that this was actually happening in France and actually happening in Paris? You know how I knew? The scene is occurring right underneath the Eiffel Tower, where everything is Paris is set. No matter where you are, Eiffel Tower's right there. But that wraps up my notes on the book. I'm going to go ahead, because I haven't done this in a while, and check out some of the ads they've got in this 90s-rific comic book. Starting out on the front inside cover, we get Beware the Ultimate Evil. It's the Super NES and Genesis version of the game for the movie Warlock. Yeah, does anyone remember the movie Warlock? Eh. It starred, what, Julian Sands, I believe, as the titular character of the Warlock, who essentially was searching for these two kids who were supposedly the regeneration of some ancient warriors or something. And basically, it had connection to the Amish or the Mennonites, and I don't know. It was it was an odd film, but Julian Sands was creepy in it, so there's that. But not a video game that I think is fondly remembered. A few pages in, we get the Fleer, uh, well, not really baseball cards, but they're action hero cards for the CGI animated show Reboot which uh, I guess touted itself as the first fully CGI animated show, and it's very fondly remembered, but as for graphics mm, compared to today, it's, it's very 90s. But at the time, it was pretty groundbreaking. So uh, for those of you who enjoyed Reboot, they had some uh, Reboot trading cards. Could have got those. The next page is an advertisement for the Aerosmith Box of Fire uh, I guess CD set, which uh, encapsulates all of Aerosmith's uh, albums at the time, including oh, what have we got? Get Your Wings, Toys in the Attic, Draw the Line, Live Bootleg, Rock and Hard Place, a lot of good albums on there. So, essentially, pretty much if you were an Aerosmith fan, and this I think is right before the time that they, well, they had already come out with uh, the one with the oh, Not Love in the Elevator. Yeah, Love in the Elevator, whatever that one was on. That wasn't Pump, was it? I can't remember. But uh, this was just basically a compilation of some of their earlier works. And Aerosmith was gaining ground as uh, a really comeback rock group in the 90s. So there you go. A few more pages in, we get You Can Become a Comic Book Artist. And it, uh, uh, it's got two books, How to Become a Comics Pro and How to Draw Comics. And these aren't the uh, draw the comics the Marvel way. It's from a group called Great Sky. In fact, they've even got a blurb from Stan Lee saying that Great Sky hasn't merely published how-to books. They virtually performed a public service. 
And you know if Stan Lee is promoting your stuff, it's obviously got to be fine quality stuff, because Stan Lee would never shill for anyone other than the best. The next page is a house ad for the year one version of Legion of Superheroes, saying that they were legends from the beginning. And the year one stories were the basically, obviously, the origin stories of all the, the heroes uh, post the Zero Hour event. So you had some good ones, and the fact that I'm not really affiliated with the Legion anyway means that I really don't know what's going on here. So there you go. I'm using there you go a lot as an ending statement here in this. I need to stop that. Way on into the book, you get an an image of a very blue-skinned, very long ponytail, very blood-pack, bloodlines character who doesn't get mad, he gets madder. Yes, it's Loose Cannon, written by Jeff Loeb with art by Adam Polina, I guess? I don't know. It's the bloodlines characters, and yeah, I think Thomas and I kind of mentioned that in issue 60, that the Bloodlines characters really went all of nowhere. So grab the grab the notoriety while you can, because it's, it's very fleeting. The subscription page for DC Comics has a really awesome poster, well, actually an awesome picture of Superman with uh, bullets bouncing off his S-Shield, and his face is sort of in silhouette. And you know what's really neat about this? Not the fact that it's just really good artwork and a really good image of Superman, but his face doesn't have the red glowy, glowy eyes. And even though it's in silhouette, you can tell that Superman is peeved. And he doesn't have the red glowy eyes. So there you go. This is how you do it, DC. Then right after that, you get Discover the DC Universe, The Eyes of a Newcomer, Rampart. Witness the birth of an explosive new team from Chris Claremont and Dwayne Turner. Coming to Earth in May, it was Sovereign 7. Now, I never read Sovereign 7, which seems to be sort of a running gag throughout this story, as outside of the main DC titles, I really didn't read much. But I'm wondering if this was regarded very well. I mean, it's Chris Claremont coming off of his X-Men run, so I'm wondering if he's trying to do a sort of X-Men book for the DC universe. I'm wondering how this is looked upon by people. If anyone has any knowledge of it, or if anyone's read it, give me a send me an email or shoot me something over at the at the website, and I'll read it on the next show. The back inside cover has another advertisement for Clearasil, uh double treatment pads. So, got acne? Get Clearasil. But the back outside cover is for an awesome version of a video game based off a movie. It's the Arnold Schwarzenegger video game True Lies. It's not like he's saving the world or anything. Oh, yes, he is. As Special Agent Harry Tasker, it's up to you to prevent a nuclear holocaust and stop the Crimson Jihad. Yes, it's James Cameron's opus to James Bond. It was a fun movie, and it was a pretty fun video game as well for the uh, Super Nintendo and Genesis Game Boy and Game Gear systems. You get to play Arnold Schwarzenegger and beat up terrorists and... Isn't that what we all want out of a video game? Of course it is. But that ends my notes for the issue. That ends the ads. And guys, I loved it. I appreciate everyone again writing in, and I appreciate all my guest hosts coming on. I want to mention, of course, that, yes, like before, these issues have not been reprinted in any way, shape, or form. So if you're wanting to find them, if you don't have them already... Go check out your uh, local comic book shops and 
go do a little back issue diving and see if you can find them. But until next time, where we'll be covering a couple more issues of Green Lantern and Guy Gardner, and moving into the storyline dealing with the uh, Way of the Warrior, where I might be bringing on a guest host to, to help me out with it. I hope you guys have a good weekend, and we'll see you back here next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, stay safe. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Van Halen with Best of Both Worlds off their album 5150. If you'd like to get the song Best of Both Worlds or the album 5150, there's numerous places on the net where you can do that. But the best place that you could go to to do that would be to go to twotruefreaks.lipson.com. At the top of the page of the Two True Freaks website, there's a banner for the Amazon.com link. You click on that banner and you're directed to Amazon.com, where you can go buy the album 5150, or download the album, or download simply the song Best of Both Worlds. And every time you use the link at twotruefreaks.libson.com, a little bit of money goes back to Two True Freaks to help pay for their site. So, if you're ever shopping for anything at Amazon.com, I suggest you go to Two True Freaks first. You're helping out one of the best podcasts on the internet.